How many of you, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you have a weakness? <laughs> All right. And so for those of you who didn't raise your hand, sleep. Um, because this morning I want to talk about weakness. Overcoming our weakness. We're in a series on the book of Judges. Oh, by the way, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell. If you're new here, we're glad to have you here. And that's, you know, uh, stand? No. All right. Thank you very much. Um, we're glad to have you here worshiping with us. We're in a series in the book of Judges. We have themed it called Overcoming. We want to overcome those things, those issues, those struggles. And there's a variety of things we'll be going through as we go through it uh, throughout the book of Judges. And we are going to be looking this morning at overcoming our weaknesses. I remember when I was a, a freshman in college at Phoenix College, J.C. Uh, if I had waited for Obama, it would have been free. But I had to pay my own way. I paid my own way to go through junior college. And I remember sitting there at breakfast, at the breakfast hour. Remember those days? That was like 1972, one? Anyways, and the TV is on. And here is this uh, uh, news of President Nixon. And they're bringing in, remember, Howard Dean and these guys into before the legislature. And quizzing them about what do they know and when do they know it and uh, the break-in at Watergate. And one of, the, one of the suspects that came out of that uh, whole series was Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was sort of the hatchet man, a brilliant man, lawyer, but uh, boy, he fell hard as a result of that and went to prison. You imagine these guys at the highest levels of power go to prison. And some of you have heard this. I shared this in the email this last week. But Chuck Colson going from the highest powers of the White House to the jailhouse and this is how he portrays that change in life. He says, The great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize the thing that God has, cho has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases I won before the Supreme Court as a lawyer. That's not what God's using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and went to prison. That was my greatest defeat, the only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in. God used His greatest defeat for His greatest victory. And I think that's what we want to talk about this morning, how God uses the weaknesses in our lives to overcome those things so that He can do even greater things through us. Went through the Scriptures. Here are some of the things that God says about weaknesses. God says a lot about weaknesses. If you've ever done a little word chase on this, you would be intrigued by how much He says. Here's just a sampling. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, the Apostle Paul had a physical disability that he prayed about repeatedly. God did not heal him. And he says, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If you have a physical weakness, a disability, you've prayed, God, please heal this. This is something God notes, and this is something Paul reflects on because he was more powerful because of that physical weakness. There are those of us who feel weak because we look into the future and we don't like what we see. 
Ezekiel says this, And when they say to you, Why do you groan? You shall say, Because all the news that is coming and every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. When I look to the future, I don't like what I see. You may think about that for your job, your physical health, your family. You may have no idea what the future holds, and you feel like this person with weak knees. God says, I note that. I know that there are people like that. Weakness and testing. Keep watching, Jesus said to his disciples, and praying that you may not enter into the temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Failed in a test lately? Tempted to do something you know you shouldn't have done, and you failed in that? God says, I noted that. I care about that. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus understands that. He wants to come alongside and help you. Some of you have financial weaknesses. You are low on cash. You're high in debt. You're trying to figure out how to get out of it. It says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And the context is of financial gifts. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. God notes that there are those of us who have financial or material weaknesses that make life hard. Some of us are emotionally weak. You have fears. You have depression. You have anxiety. And Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Those of us who are anxious or depressed or emotionally down or discouraged, God says that's a weakness I know about. The Apostle Paul, one of my greatest saints, one of my greatest leaders in the church, there is probably nobody that exceeds Paul in the impact of a community and a world and his era. And Paul says, I struggle, I struggle with fear and trembling anxiety. Imagine that. God used them nevertheless. We also see that there are people who are just weak in life. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ came to this earth to feel weakness, to feel all the weaknesses that we feel. And all the weaknesses I just portrayed for you, Jesus has entered into those things. And he wants to come. And I want to show us what God has for us as we go into the book of Judges to help you and me overcome weaknesses of life. One of the character traits of the book of Judges is this chart where Israel comes together before God and they serve the Lord. They're excited about God. And then Israel falls into some sort of idolatry and sin. They sort of get self-complacent, self-reliant. And so therefore he is, Israel is enslaved into that life, lifestyle until God comes along and begins to discipline and judge them. And then they come back and says, God, we need you after all. And so the cyclical thing that you see repeatedly through the book of Judges, and that's why the theme of overcoming is so apt, because they are constantly having to overcome the same thing over and over. If you have a weakness that it feels like you can never quite have victory over that, and you keep falling back into it, maybe it's a sinful thing. And you keep on repeating the same sin over and over. You say, Lord, I, I don't want to live this way. Well, the book of Judges is a book that addresses the challenge of overcoming those things that in a repetitive way I simply can't seem to find victory in. And we want to talk about that this morning. Here is the first thing that comes. You have an outline in the bulletin. I encourage you to use that to follow along because I believe what you hear and what you see, you remember longer. If you just listen to me, I know you'll walk out of this room and you will forget. What was that topic again? Uh, except for the fact that you raised your hand and said you are weak, you won't remember the rest. Here is one of the first things we know that God does in overcoming weakness in Judges 3. 
Expect God to test and discipline you to overcome your spiritual weakness. Let me read Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, as we go through this together. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left. He left all these nations. Here is sort of a... Let me just back up. Israel has just entered into what we know today as the country of Israel. In fact, there are other parameters of the, of the boundaries that are probably a little bit bigger in those days than today. But they've entered into this land, the promised land, and there are enemy nations in the promised land. Even as the nation of Israel battles with the Palestinian people, the Hamas, and some of these that are there in the, in the various portions of Israel, they had other populations of Gentile nations that were battling them. They had to overcome them to have this land secured as their own. So in Judges 3, 1, it says, Now these are the nations, these other nations that are there which the Lord left. He left these nations in the land to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war those who had not experienced it formally. Now listen to what God is doing in 3, 1, and 2. God says, I'm going to leave opposition. I'm going to leave enemies in the land because many of you grew up never having to face opposition. You had it easy. So I'm going to leave opposition to test you so that you become a warrior battle-tested to overcome the enemy. Think about the... Here is a little uh, Davism. When you study the Old Testament, there are temporary practices. I said this last week. There are temporary practices that lead us to timeless principles. Obviously, we're not going to go to a foreign land. That's not the application here. We're not going to go to a foreign land and defeat an enemy nation. You and I aren't going to do that. That's not the application. That was the temporary practice of the day of Judges. So why are the days of the judges relevant for you and for me? Because it's something that God still does. We are told in the New Testament that God tells us the stories of the Old Testament so we can learn how to live in the New Testament days. So the temporary practices lead us to timeless principles. And the timeless principle is that we should expect God to test us and to discipline us so that we will overcome our spiritual weaknesses. And in this particular case, God brings opposition challenges, sometimes painful suffering, be it physical, emotional, financial, I just reiterated those things. He allows those. Why? So that my faith can be tested. So I can have a capacity to rise above. So I can be refined and purified and strengthened and accomplish what God wants me to accomplish. So if you're praying about something and God's not taking it away... You're praying about some of the things that just rattle off of the weaknesses. You're praying about the weakness that you raise your hand over. And God's not removing it. It may be that God says, I want to allow that a little bit longer because as long as you experience that weakness, that challenge, that obstacle, I'm able to do something in your heart and your life that I wouldn't be able to do if you were sufficient and you became self-reliant. Because it says in Hebrew or in Hosea thirteen six and seven, it says there that the nation of Israel was well fed by God, and they became proud, and becoming proud in their self sufficiency, they forgot God. We are vulnerable to forgetting God 
when all weaknesses are removed. So God allows these nation states to remain there so that He can do a mighty work in their lives. He allows weakness and obstacles in our lives to test us. He tests us to reveal the biblical obedience of our lives. In verse 4, it says, they were, they, Those nations remained there for the testing of Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which He had commanded their fathers through Moses. In my weakness, God is testing, Okay, you say you believe in the Bible. You say you're a follower of Jesus. Well, now that you're in a state of weakness, let's find out how much that Word of God is going to be lived out in weakness. Not in strength, but in weakness. So I'm asking us to be people that even in the weaknesses and the oppositions and the challenges, see this as something sent from God that He wants to move us into a higher state. We're not here teaching prosperity gospel where God's going to fix it all for you. You don't get it all in this life. It's an opportunity to grow in that. That's why James says this, Consider it all joys, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Testing... If you want to be perfect, complete, and lack nothing, allow the weakness to test the heart to biblical obedience so that God can get you where you really want to go. It's a route that we don't always like to go on, but it's there. But He also will discipline us. You notice in verses 7 through 9 of Judges chapter 3, the uh, author goes on and says this, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that uh, he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishtheom. Cushan Rishtheom means Cushan, the doubly wicked man. This is who they're dealing with in those days. He is the king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Risha. Theom eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He disciplined them. God's anger was against them so that they would come back to the Lord. He raised up a deliverer. That's where the book of Judges comes in. God will discipline us today. For they discipline us for a short time that seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to be jo- seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. It may be that some of us here are being trained by God through discipline. We want what we want, but we're not getting it. We're not overcoming it. The weakness persists. But God says that's training ground. And allow me to train you to the point where you have a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so that's the first thing we learn. And then we need to be aware of misplaced faith. This is the thing that strikes me about Othniel, this judge. Misplaced faith in man rather than in God to overcome the weakness. You notice in verses 10 through 14 about this new judge that God has raised up. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. I can never say those names correctly, so I just blur it. But this Cushan doubly wicked man, 
is overcome by the Spirit of God in Othniel, the judge. Now the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So 40 years, Othniel ruled over them. They had peace. And here's the cyclical thing. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the, son, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, which is Jericho. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Let me make a very simple point, and I want to get to Ehud. And it is this. Timeless principle. For 40 years, Othniel is the judge. And as long as the people are looking at Othniel, they're saying, okay, we're good. Spirit of God's in Othniel. He's not in us, but he's in him. So as long as he's around, I'm with you, Lord. Othniel dies after 40 years of peace. After Othniel dies, what do the people do? They go back to worshiping these idols. And they turn their back on God. And what strikes me about this is this uh, period of time. And here's just a simple little principle that I want to move on from, but I think there's a good application that I didn't want to miss, and it is this. That it's too easy for us when in weakness to have more faith in a person than in God. And that's, that's the danger sign. Uh, l- let me apply it this way. Let's... Let's take, because last week we had this uh, fascinating, if not a little edgy, message on marriage. Remember that? How can you forget it? That was intriguing to me. And at the same time I was listening to him, I was reading also an article about a marriage of uh, the Duck Dynasty, one of the Duck Dynasty. Remember the, you know, the Duck Dynasty people? Uh, they sell the duck things. I've never watched the show, but uh, I still read about it. And so one of the couples in Duck Dynasty, Christian family, uh, they're very, very outspoken about their faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the couples uh, has written a book, and in that book they describe how uh, the wife has had a 14-year affair with another man. And so it's just astounding. And she comes out of a child molestation background. So there's, there's a lot of things that are really strange. And they have overcome that. They have found victory over that. And the question came to them, how did you overcome such ruthless betrayal of a relationship? And here's the question. You also made your relationship with God more important than your relationship with Alan. This is to the wife, Lisa. Lisa says, yes, he is at the core of everything I do. I'm only going to want to do the things that help Alan. And he's only going to want to do the things to help me. I think that one of the most important facets to the marriage, having your relationship with Christ first and he being king. Alan, the husband now says, that's what really changed us. Lisa worshipped me from a young age. It was unhealthy. Until she got her priorities right that Jesus was first and that I was second, it's been amazing. It's literally been two halves of a marriage. The first 15 years, then the second 15 years. And here's the thing that I want us to cite from that. 
And I believe that comes out of the Othniel. It's just an opportunity for us to learn from that. In Judges, as long as Othniel was walking with God, peace in the land. Here's what happens for those of us who are married. If you're looking to your spouse as the means by which I will be right in my life, you may have a misplaced priority. For Lisa of the Duck Dynasty, he says, she worshiped me. Now, I've never had that trouble in my marriage. (laughs) But for her, she was worshiping her husband. And that's the problem. If you're a wife in a bad marriage, don't look to your husband for your well-being. You look to Jesus. If you're a husband and you're in a bad marriage and you're thinking to yourself, if only she'd get her life right, then my life would be okay. Misplaced priority. Your relationship with Jesus is first. Because we who are spouses, we will fail repeatedly. We will have problems. We will have disappointments. We will not measure up. On any given day or moment, we will fall short. And if my hope is in perfection of a spouse, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. And so we go to Othniel. As long as Othniel is walking with Jesus, I'm good. When Othniel dies, I'm bad. Why? Because the people of Israel never had their faith in God. They had their faith in Othniel. And so I'm saying to those of us who are looking to your boss, to your friend, to your spouse, to your parents, if your faith is dependent upon things going well in their lives so my life goes well, misplaced priority. And I need to get it back under the priority of Jesus because He never fails me. He is always going to be there. And then other things begin to get into the right perspective as a result. So a very simple thing that we need to keep our minds on so that we don't walk as the Israelites walked. Now, let me move to the next very amazing section of God's Word. And there's something about this that feels a little R-rated, and you're going to see this in the next couple of Sundays. It's just incredible what God records in the history of His people. In Judges chapter 3, we come to the next judge. And here is the reason they needed this judge. Backing up what I just read about Ehud, or Ehud, or whoever, however you want to pronounce that. There is this king in verse 12. Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Now, where is the king of Moab? Put on the screen here. This is where Moab is. Uh, It is uh, to that side of the Dead Sea down there. The Moabites, and you see Ammon, who are the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites come from Lot, where Lot had this illicit relationship with his two daughters. And, you know, the consequences of sin continue to, to be like a domino. And so out of this illicit relationship between Lot and his two daughters come two groups of people that are constantly thorn in the flesh in the nation of Israel, the Ammonites and the Moabites. So Eglon is in Moab. And Eglon begins to be used by God to attack the Jewish people. And so you see where he comes from. And Eglon rallies his relatives, the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites, they come, they come swarming in. And they then rally the Amalekites. The Amalekites come from the south. And they all begin to converge upon this area of the nation of Israel to attack the people. Why? Because they have disobeyed God. 
So God uses these foreign nations to test and to train, to discipline so that they will turn their hearts back to the Lord. So Eglon is in full force of attacking them and the people are all upset and crying out to God as they typically would do because they have failed to live up to the standard that God called them to. And so the sons of Israel served Eglon, the, uh, the king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years they're enslaved to this opposition. And God says, okay. In verse 15, here's what happens then. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, and how gracious is God to constantly hear that cry and respond? You ever feel like God's tired of hearing your complaints? If you feel like God is tired of hearing your complaints and is not going to listen anymore, just read the book of Judges and you realize God is so patient. He's so gracious. No matter how many times I fail, He seems to always want to listen. That's incredible. Because you might have had a parent that wouldn't put up with that. Well, don't put that on God. Because God is not that way. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So if you're left-handed, you're going to like this story. If you're right-handed, you're going to like this story. So I don't want to discriminate. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And the tribute might have been a bunch of animals, some food. It might have been some uh, valuable stones. We don't know. But they, they are going to go and, and uh, really sort of sweeten the relationship. They, they want to go and look like they really love Eglon after 18 years of servitude to him. Obviously, it's not real. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's important for the storyline. It's not because God likes to point out that. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, Ehud did, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. So you're talking about a blade that's 18 inches long, and maybe the handle's another 6 inches long. So you're looking at uh, about two feet worth of sword going into a belly. So two feet, I mean, just think, that's a lot of belly. So the handle also went after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. That's his intestines and everything in it. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule, shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, He is only relieving himself in the cool room. 
He's going to the bathroom. That's what they thought. Well, they waited until they came, became anxious, and behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now, he had escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols, and he escaped to Syria. And it came about after he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from all the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them. For the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and they did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. 80 years. So that's Ehud. Now what do we do with a story like that? Are we supposed to stab people we don't like? Is that the application? For some of you that may sound like a good idea. I don't think that's the application. Here is what I believe is a timeless principle that comes from a temporary practice. Here's the first point. We need to trust that God will use the weakness of inadequate and disabled people, that's us, to overcome the challenge of this world. All of us, well, I don't know, probably all of us either in our mind or literally with our, with our hand, should be our left hand, said, when I began, I have a weakness. God loves honest people who say, I have a weakness. Because God uses weak people. He doesn't need strong people. He needs weak people. That's what God is teaching us through Ehud. Notice this. But when the sons of Israel, in verses 15, of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The Benjaminites, as you will see when we get to Gideon, were the lowest, smallest tribe. Benjamin, the name means the son of a right hand. Son of a right hand. Benjaminites. Because right hand signifies power and authority. Sit down at the right hand of God. The hand of God, the right hand comes and bestows power and blessing. The right hand, not that there's bias against left-handed people, but it's a symbol of power and authority and strength. So then God says, you know what, I'm going to take the son of the right hand, Benjaminite, and I'm going to use Ehud, who is a left-handed man. And that's why I wanted to point out, he is a left-handed man. That's not an insignificant detail. It's not like God is always pointing out, and he was right-handed, and he was left We don't know whether people were right-handed or left-handed except for Ehud. And there were 700 Benjaminites who were left-handed, and they were expert marksmen with their uh, slingshots. So there's a bunch of left-handed people in the Benjamin gene pool. But Ehud was noted as a left-handed man. If you read the Hebrew literally as to what the word left-handed man means, you would read it this way as I put it on the screen. At the very bottom of that same verse, left-handed reads, a man handicapped in his right hand. It may be that Ehud had a hand that somehow was deformed at birth, somehow became paralyzed through injury. We don't know. There's a police officer I ride with uh, every so often, uh, Santa Ana Police Department. 
And he has a right hand that you would think would disqualify him uh, from being a police officer because he has no fingers. He simply has something of a configuration like this. He has used that disability to disarm those who think he doesn't have capacity. He's a very strong and, and uh, significant officer with the police department. But his injured hand makes the criminal sort think, this guy can't even shoot a gun with a hand like that. So he surprises people with his capacity to overcome the disability to do things that you think physically he can't do. I think the same thing's true about Ehud. I think that they chose Ehud, who was probably the last one that, if he had a democratic vote, probably not chosen. But God says, I like to take those that are the unsuspecting, the weak, the unable, the unable, the inadequate, the deficient ones. I like to take those and use them. Just think through the Bible. Remember Moses? Moses said, you don't want to use me, I can't speak. Take my brother, he's much more fluent than I am. God says, no, I, I like people like Moses who can't do something. Take Paul, I just read in 2 Corinthians 12. I've got a thorn in the flesh. I can't do this. God says, that's a good thing you can't do it because I don't need your power. I need my power through you. Gideon, small man. We're going to look him, uh, we'll come to him a little bit later. Samson takes the jawbone of an ass. Just incredible the things God will use. The very last verse of chapter 3. And we're going to get into it. But after him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goat. You know what an ox goat is? It's a stick with a point on the end and a little blade on the other end. 600 people with an ox goat. Who can do that? Nobody can do that. But God takes those small things. So God takes the left-handed man with a wounded right hand because as he walks into this King Eglon's Moab kingdom, they look at that deficient or deformed or disabled right hand and they think this guy can't possibly hurt Eglon Look at his deformity. And so he has entered in, and God used that, powered it. Paul writes, Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than the men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's you and me. He's calling you and me foolish. You ever feel foolish? God says, you are foolish. That's how the world looks at you. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That's why our weaknesses are powered by God. That's why God loves the weaknesses of our lives. The base things of the world, the despised things God has chosen. The things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. God can do anything He wants. He doesn't need powerful very highly talented people to accomplish His will. He uses those people, but He's not dependent upon that. He loves to take the weak and empower them because we're so surprised. And we say, this is all of a God thing. I can't do this. This has to be from God. And God says, exactly. Because those who are super talented and super bright that God can still use if they have a humble heart, but if they're so self-sufficient in using those things that they think, I don't need you, God, anymore. God says, where's the glory for me in that? And so sometimes God creates weaknesses, allows weaknesses, so that He can nullify 
those things that are strong. Paul writes, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Paul was not a particularly fluent and persuasive man verbally. But in demonstration of the spirit of power, so your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's what God does. I hope that you will take those weaknesses and say, God, it's for you. I want to use it for you. I'm not going to cripple myself by disallowing your power. But I want to take that disability and that weakness and use it. Here's what one person said. Never underestimate the good that one person can do who is filled with the Spirit of God and obedient to the will of God. And when a God puts me into action, then I need to be like Ehud. Remain courage, courageous and uncompromised in overcoming evil. I love this one little verse here. But he turned himself back from the idols. He did not stop. We think that those idols that he's going by might be precious stones, valuable things that are in Gilgal. He says, I'm not going to stop and tantalize myself with some of the things of the world. I'm going to go beyond those idols because I have a job to do. I'm going to courageously walk back into that place where that king is. I'm going to close that door. We're going to dismiss everybody out of this room. And I'm going to do what God sent me to do. And it's not going to be easy to do. And there just happened to be a sword sitting here. I don't know why the sword is here except that I'm going to use it right now. Oh. This is what he would have used. And if any of you weigh 500 pounds, I'd like to see how... God uses these simple little things. He fashioned this himself, Ehud did. He made it himself. And he take that, that tool and you finish what God called you to do, Ehud. And there he displayed his power over them. And God says to you and to me, we don't go after people physically, but spiritually finally be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the forces of the wicked darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, and the rest describes the armor. This last week, you might have read, as I did, there was a sheriff that went into an operation, a police operation, and that sheriff was shot three times by the man that they come to arrest. Three times in the chest. That was the headline. Then when you read further along, you realize that he was wearing his armor. He's wearing his vest. Saved his life. God says there will be people who will shoot us up and we will struggle. We are in struggles. A struggle against flesh and blood. We are not in a victorious path. We're in a struggle. And I need to use the power of God to go through me to overcome that. Because I can't do it in my strength. I need to trust in God and God's power. And one of the ways that God did that through the book of Judges is overcome through community and service of God's people. They didn't do it alone. Ehud did not do it alone. He was the leader. He set the pace. He had the courage. He had the weakness that God could use to be able to get to the king of Moab so they can go and take the life of the king of Moab. But then he says it's now it's up to all of us. We all need to rally together to this. And that's why I love this last section. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim up to the north and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was in front of them. Ehud was in front 
Let's go. Let's go get them. And pursued them for the hand of the Lord has given the enemies the Moabites into your hands. They did it collectively. We don't do this alone. We don't go out and as an island somehow accomplish the will of God. That's why we are a community. That's why we're a church. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have community like these Wednesday night classes coming up. So that you sit in that uh, marriage class, or you sit in that alpha course class, and you sit with other people that are in the same place as you, maybe a little head, maybe a little behind where you're at, you sit there and you say, you know what, I'm not alone. I've got other people who are as weak as I am, and I need the help. We do it in community. That's the timeless principle. He rallied the troops and they slaughtered 10,000 Moabites. We don't slaughter anybody, but we overcome. We overcome through weakness that God empowers, through community of God's people, through a courageous, courageous commitment to finish the job. And I close with this quote. The world is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men and women who understand the basics. The power of the Holy Spirit, wise strategies, and who had that, and a steadfast courage. Othniel and Ehud have shown us the way. Would you take that weakness of yours, say, God, would you through my life empower me to overcome those things that I'm just struggling with now? Would you empower me, infuse me with your spirit so that I have capacity to move beyond this and be a servant of yours to accomplish all that you have for me while I'm on this earth? And as uh, Francis Chan said, we have just a short little micro speck of time in all of eternity to live on this earth. And in this little time that you've given me, let me be used by you, even with my weakness. God, whatever that is, would you use it in my life? Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that we would be people who admit our weaknesses but don't resign ourselves to failure. But that God, the weaknesses that we know that we have, that maybe only we know or maybe others know with us, are those things that God that gives you capacity to strengthen us. For when we are weak, then we are strong, as Paul said. God, I pray your Spirit would help those of us who admit our weaknesses so that we can overcome, whether it's that marriage, that financial situation, that emotional struggle, that relationship with another person, that job, that health issue. Father, whatever it may be, Father, in that weakness, will you empower us to be an overcomer, to be used by you to glorify your name. Help us, Father, as we commit it to you in Jesus' name.